Thanks, James. And well done, Katie, for getting all those names out. You did very well. Friends, welcome to church. My name is Mike. I'm the senior, uh, senior minister and pastor here uh, at the church. Keep your Bibles open there as we spend some time uh, in it uh, tonight. You've got an outline inside your service sheet there as well. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand His Word uh, and the inspiration to live it out. Our Father, we do thank you from what we've been reminded already tonight from the Gideon's presentation, that your word is powerful, that it always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it, that your spirit has inspired it, that it's living and active. Father, we've heard your word already tonight read and we pray now that by your spirit you would help us understand it and that you would inspire us to live it out. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I might be in the minority here tonight, but my heart is filled with joy that Australia has retained the ashes in the cricket over in England. Australia won the fourth test last week in Old Trafford, meaning that their grip on the urn is guaranteed. However, this next test plays out, Australia is going to secure the ashes. But if you've been following the cricket, and I might be in the minority here, but Australia had the opportunity in the third test to secure the ashes. They started so well. They bowled England out in their first innings for one of the lowest scores in Test match history, a miserly total of 67 runs. And then in their second innings, Australia set England the almost impossible task of 359 runs to win. They started so well. Looked like they had the match in the bag. But then things started to unravel for Australia. They started to drop catches. They wasted reviews which would have secured the wickets they needed. And they even missed one of the most easiest of run-out opportunities that would have won them the match. And the English batsmen just stuck around like stubborn Canaanites in the promised land. And eventually... As the adrenaline and the blood pressure started to increase, they hit the winning runs. It was absolutely incredible to watch, but so devastatingly frustrating at the same time. Chris and I were watching it together uh, one Sunday night after church, and I reckon if Chris could have jumped through the TV screen onto the pitch to let the Australians know how to play cricket, well, he, he didn't need to do that because he was letting the whole world know what was going wrong at this particular time. But this whole scenario reminded me that it's one thing to start well, it's another thing to finish well. And of course, this idea is not limited to cricketers, is it? It's a battle that we all continue to face. How many books do you have on your bookshelf at home that you've meant to read but have never got around to doing it? Or gentlemen, how many projects around the house have you started but they're still quite, not quite there yet. We all know it's easy to start, but it's another thing to finish. And it's the same in the Christian life as well. How many people do you know who used to be members of our church that are no longer here because they're no longer followers of the Lord Jesus? I'm sure you can all think of people, maybe the people that used to sit next to you in these seats. But what about you? Are you going to finish the Christian life and race strong as well? 
How do you know? Are you still going to be here or still following the Lord in five years, 10 years, 20 years time? How do you know? We need help, don't we? And as we come to Joshua chapter 13 to 17 tonight, we're going to hear some lessons on how not just to start well, but how to finish well. And Israel, in the story in Joshua, have started well indeed. They have looked the goods. They have been strong and courageous following Joshua and the Lord into battle. The end of chapter 12 we saw last week, Joshua has slain 31 kings. They are in the promised land. It is theirs. They've started so well. But as chapter 13 begins, we're reminded that they have not finished. There is still much work to do and there are a few obstacles to their work. I love the way that the Lord addresses Joshua in verse 1 of chapter 13. The Lord says to Joshua, this is the first obstacle, you have become old, getting on in years, and a great deal of the land remains to be possessed. And Katie's already read it so beautifully, so I'm not going to read it again. All the land that needs to be possessed. Poor Joshua, he's getting old, along in years. That's an obstacle. Their fearless leader that they've been following into battle. And there's a lot of land that's still to be uh, possessed. And chapter 13 through to chapter 17, even into 18 and 19, doesn't make the most exciting of reading. Unless you love geography at school, or you love reading development applications for Blacktown Council, or you love land topography maps, it doesn't make the most exciting of reading as they talk about the different tribes of Israel and which area of the land that they get. And we read it and we're like, oh, I can't even pronounce these places and it's just boring. But if you were an Israelite hearing which part of the land is yours, it would have been the most exciting news. It's like Christmas. You mean that, that, that's mine? That's, it'd be like today, you know, our Joshua, the Lord Jesus, telling us in the new creation, what's your inheritance, Chris? in the new heavens and the new earth, you get all the Pacific Islands from Hawaii all the way down through Samoa into Fiji and then into, that's all yours. And, and then Kelly, you get Africa from Egypt through to Cape Town and the elephants are your pets. It's all yours. And, and then um, Harley, you get Mount Druitt. <laughs> you know, that's the air of excitement around these chapters. They're not boring at all. I know you're excited, Harley. But there is still so much more work to be done for the Israelites. They've got the land, but they do not possess it fully. And as you read into chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17, there is a refrain that often appears. And I want to suggest it's a sad refrain. Let me show it to you. Chapter 13, look down at verse 13 of chapter 13. But the Israelites did not drive out the Geshurites and the Markathites. So Gesher and Markath live in Israel to this day. Turn over the page to chapter 15, verse 63, the bottom of the page on 203. But the descendants of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live in Jerusalem among the descendants of Judah to this day. Turn over the page again to chapter 16, verse 10. You notice something similar. But they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites live in Ephraim to this day, but they are forced laborers. Or you jump down to chapter 17, verse 
13. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they imposed forced labor on the Canaanites, but did not drive them out completely. What's the refrain? Israel did not drive out the nations that they should have. And even when they had the strength to do it, they didn't do it. Now, this accommodation sounds quite gracious, even compassionate. We could destroy you, but we're allowing you to live in our neighborhood. And that's kind of what we would expect, particularly as Christians, when we hear Jesus saying, love your enemy and do good to those who persecute you. But remember, this is way before the time of Jesus. And Israel had a very specific mission from God in the land of Canaan. They had a command from God in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 to drive out the nations of Canaan. Why? What's different then than now for Christians who love our enemies? Well, because you remember in the big plan of God, the land of Canaan was meant to be the beginning of a new creation, a new garden of Eden. But there can be no snakes in this garden. They must be driven out so that Israel could live as God's holy people and shine a light to a dark world of what life could look like when people lived in right relationship with the Lord. And sadly, Israel's vision of this glorious reality of what God wants to do in the world has become a distant memory. They haven't obeyed God. Why would they do that? Well, in chapter 13 to chapter 17, I think two reasons stand out. The first is this. Actually, we're going to see both in chapter 17. It's a good little microcosm of what's going on. The first reason they don't do what God says is they are complacent. Complacency has taken over. And I think we can see this in the attitude of the people of Manasseh. Have a look at verse 12 and 13 again of chapter 17. The descendants of Manasseh could not possess these cities because the Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they imposed forced labor on the Canaanites but did not drive them out completely. Now, you can understand why they didn't do it initially, because they weren't strong enough. But the writer of Joshua says in verse 13 that when they became strong enough, they still didn't do it. Why? Well, why drive out some people when you can make them your slaves? You've got some free employment labor. It's a win-win. They became complacent. They thought, well, if the Canaanites ever rise up in power again, well, we're strong now. We will just put them back in their place. It's all good. They're just some little Canaanites. They're not going to cause any problems. But you only have to read into the book of Judges or 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel and you can see that the Canaanites, because the Israelites didn't drive them out when they had the opportunity, become a constant thorn in their flesh. The danger of short-term success is the danger of complacency. Like the Australian cricket team who thinks they've won the match before they've actually won the match. And I want to suggest that complacency is still a problem for God's people today. It's a problem in our Christian lives today. In our own Christian lives, we can become complacent with sin in our life. We may have had a victory over temptation and sin. You know, lust is no longer a problem for me or my anger management is no longer an issue and self-control, I've got that. And I pat myself on the back and I'm like, I'm making victories in my life for the Lord. 
but I've become complacent and I don't notice the things that the Lord wants to continue to show me where I need to become more like his son who died and rose again to give me new life. The pride that still needs to be worked on by his spirit. The greed that still needs to be overcome. I just get complacent. Or we get complacent in our corporate and personal worship as followers of Jesus. We can forget to prioritise how important it actually is to gather together as God's people. Here, yes, on a Sunday, but also in our homes with our families as well. I was always told when I was learning to be a minister, don't rebuke those at church for not coming to church because you are already here. So thank you for being here tonight. But there'll be people listening to this sermon online later. You should be here, gathering together with God's people. And we can justify not doing it because we can say, I'm under grace, not under law. I I listened to Mike's sermon last month online. It's okay. We we just get complacent. Last night after dinner, we um, toasted some marshmallows uh, outside in the backyard over a fire pit, which is just absolutely great. Maybe we'll do it again after church tonight. Come up, we'll do it. But I was reminded as we were toasting marshmallows over the open fire of what my youth minister told me many years ago. You take a hot coal out of the fire, the coal will eventually go cold. And he said, you take a hot Christian out of Christian community, the church, eventually that will go cold. Not just to the Christian community, but to the Lord as well. It's so easy to be complacent. The second area that causes Israel to stumble in Joshua 13 to 17, I think is the opposite. Fear. Fear. Have a look at verse 14 to 16 at the end of chapter 17. Verse 14 to 16. I'll put some emphasis and tone to these verses, which I don't know whether it was actually there in the beginning, but I like to think that it was. Joseph's descendants said to Joshua, Why did you give us only one tribal allotment as an inheritance? We have many people because the Lord has been blessing us greatly. And then I like Joshua's sarcastic reply, but I don't know if it was true or not, but I like to think that it was. If you have so many people, Joshua replied to them, go to the forest and clear an area for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, because Ephraim's hill country is too small for you. But the descendants of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who inhabit the valley area have iron chariots, both at Beth Sheen with its towns and in the Jezreel Valley. Can you hear the descendants of Joseph? At one level, they're whinging about, we've got too small an area and the Lord has blessed us with so many people. And Joshua's like, well, go and make some more room. Cut down some trees and you've got some more room. Oh no, we can't do that. We'll go down into the valley, there's heaps of room down there. Oh, we can't do that either because there's the big scary Canaanites and they have iron chariots. whoop de doo says Joshua. You've got God on your side, go down there. Oh no, we can't do that. We might be large, but they have the guns. Fear is paralyzing them from doing what they need to do. I don't know if you've seen the movie Frozen. After accidentally hurting her sister Anna when they were just children with her frozen magic. Elsa's solution to the problem when she realises how powerful she is, is to do what? To hide away. To hide away. Even when her sister 
sings down the corridors. Let's ride a bike around the hall. Elsa's words are, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now we know. Now, we'll let that one go. But you can see it's her fear of what might happen that stops her from doing and from being all that she could be. And it's so true in the Christian life, isn't it, that fear can paralyze us from doing what God wants us to do. It's unique, isn't it, Mike singing? (laughs) But fear of conflict can stop us from having the conversation that we need to have with our husband or wife. Fear of rejection can cause us not to invite our neighbour or a friend to church. Like Matthew said, they may not ever talk to us again, so let's not risk it. Fear of what others might think of us will stop us even as leaders in the church stepping out and trying something new for the Lord. Well, what if it fails and what if nobody likes it? And fear can paralyze us. Even as Christian parents in our relationship with our kids, fear can lead us to overprotect our kids rather than prepare them for the big bad world that's out there. I wonder if you can see where fear has held you back where it's paralysed you, not just in life generally, but in your discipleship of Jesus, in your Christian life. And I want to suggest that at the heart of the problem of fear in the Christian life is exactly the same that lies at the heart of complacency in the Christian life. That the complacent Christian looks at themselves and pats them on the back. I'm really awesome at the moment. Just a little sin, that's okay, I can deal with that. The fearful Christian looks at themselves and is paralyzed. I'm hopeless. I've got no idea. It's, it's too scary to do anything. What's similar between those two attitudes? It's an unhealthy focus on self. The complacent Christian looks at themselves. I'm awesome. The fearful Christian looks at themselves and says, I'm hopeless. The problem is the same an unhealthy focus on yourself. So, what's the solution? to being paralysed by fear or patting yourself on the back in complacency. The solution is to take your eyes off yourself. And where do you think the Bible will want us to keep our focus? On Jesus, on God, on His person, His power and the promises that He has made to His people. And so I want to finish by taking us back to Joshua chapter 14. This is where we see how to not just start well, but to finish well how to finish strong. And it's by not keeping our focus on ourselves, but on God, trusting in Him, having our faith in Him. We won't read chapter 14 again. Uh, James has already done that well for us. But it's the story of Caleb. I don't know if you remember who Caleb uh, is, Caleb was. He was Joshua's mate. You know, 45 years before this event, Caleb along with Joshua, only two of the spies that initially went into the promised land and said, this place is awesome, we can go in and take it. Everyone else said, no, we can't, they have the big iron chariots and they're, you know, we can't do anything. Caleb is one of those guys. Now it's 45 years later and he comes to Joshua, mate. You know, a bit like Joseph, a bit like Manasseh, talking about their land allotments. Caleb does the same thing, but he is contrasted so clearly with the people of Manasseh and the people 
of Joseph. Whereas the people of Manasseh are complacent, allowing sin to mingle in their Christian li- in their in their lives, we're told at least three times in chapter fourteen, in verse eight, in verse nine, and then again in verse fourteen that Caleb remained loyal to the Lord his God. He kept his eyes on God. No doubt he knew that he wasn't perfect, so he wasn't complacent. He trusted in the Lord his God. He remained loyal to him. And and unlike the people of Joseph who are paralysed by fear, you see that Caleb is not fearful at all. He is bold and he is brave. Have a look at verse 10 again. Caleb says to Joshua, as you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 years as he promised, since the Lord spoke the word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness. Here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. Can you hear his boldness and his, and his bravery? He's 85 years old, but he says, I'm just as strong today as I was when I was 40. And I like to imagine the, the young warriors of Israel, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-old bucks who think that they've got it all, making fun of Caleb as an 85-year-old, maybe pulling out the Zimmer frame and the walking stick and mocking Caleb. I'm 85 years old, but I'm still strong and I'm going to take the rest of the land. But you notice Caleb, his boldness and bravery is not because he focuses on himself. He's not naive. He's 85 years old and he knows it. But he realises his strength comes from somewhere else. At the end of verse 12, Caleb says, Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord promised. Caleb's going to finish strong. Because his faith is not in himself, but in God who has made promises to him. I don't know about you, but I want to be like Caleb when I'm 85 years old. In every church that I have served in over the years, I've met people like Caleb. Older men and older women who are finishing strong as followers of the Lord. Earlier this year, I got to go on a mission trip to Africa, uh, to Kelly's country, in the middle, got to see some elephants too, to Zambia. And here's a picture of Rosemary Mumbi. Rosemary Mumbi is a Caleb. When Rosemary decided to retire from her normal work, she didn't buy an apartment near the beach and just stick her feet up playing lawn bowls and croquet. Do you know what Rosemary decided to do in her retirement? Sell everything that she had. Move to the capital city of Lusaka, and buy property in a slum to start a school so that kids living in poverty would know that someone loves them, that God created them and has a plan and a purpose for their life. And she wanted them to know the Lord Jesus that gave up his life for her and so she was willing to give up whatever it took to see other people come to know him. In her retirement... You know, the great Australian dream for retirement is to buy a caravan and go around the country or get on the next cruise ship and travel the world. Not Rosemary. I'm not against doing that. I have a caravan, as you know. But Rosemary was thinking so much bigger 
than that. I want to be like that when I'm 85 years old. I don't want to be an old man spending my time watching Fox Sports and playing the pokies at the club. I don't want to be a fearful old man locked up in my nursing home room too scared to go out into the big bad world. I want to be a front room warrior like Caleb. I'm 85 but I'm still wanting to go strong for the Lord. I want that, don't you? Don't you want to get to the end of your life and enter your promised land of heaven and have stories to tell of what God did for you and in your life to others? Victories over sin and temptation that with God's help you've conquered. Stories to tell of people that you influenced over the years of your life who are there standing in the promised land of heaven with you. Don't you want those stories to tell? Isn't it often true that the older folk among us have lots of stories to tell? I want to have heaps of stories to tell when I'm standing in the promised land of heaven. What a tragedy it will be to arrive at our promised land and have no stories to tell because we haven't done anything. We haven't trusted God enough to step out in faith even if we don't have all that we think that we need. And we've got no stories to tell. What a tragedy that will be. I want to be like Caleb when I'm 85. I want to be like Rosemary Mumbi, fighting to the end. So let me encourage you, whether you are 25 or 85, keep fighting, finish well. Keep fighting against sin in your life. Ask for help if you need it. Keep fighting to see your friend or your family member come to know the Lord Jesus. Keep fighting for our church's reputation and witness in our community. Keep fighting finish strong and we can if our faith is firmly in the Lord and not in ourself and you see at the end of Joshua chapter 14 what faith in God leads to have a look again at verse 15 of chapter 14 this is a brilliant verse Hebron's name used to be Kiriath Arba Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim but after this the land had rest from war. It's the first time rest is mentioned in Joshua. Rest, of course, was the pinnacle of God's creation. On the seventh day, God rested and his creation got to enjoy everything to do with God and what he had done. Rest was the hopeful picture of the promised land, this new garden of Eden. Now, of course, it was only temporary, as we know, as readers of the Bible. Ultimate rest, eternal rest would only come when that great man would say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We know that's the case. But whether in shadow or in fulfilment, the pattern is the same. Faith in God always leads to rest with God. Faith in God always leads to rest with God. And so if you haven't yet put your faith in God, Hear again what Jesus is saying. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, put your faith, trust me, hand your life over to me. Stop trying to do everything yourself and being paralyzed by fear on one hand or patting yourself hypocritically on the other. Come to me, says Jesus, lay your burdens down. I've already taken your burdens on the cross and paid for them in full. Come to me and have the rest that you so desperately need. Maybe you need to do that tonight. 
But my guess is most of you have already done that. And so those of you who know what rest with God is like, those of you who know the secure promise of the new creation, the inheritance that is yours, let that secure promise drive you to get out into our world. Our world is full of drowning people. And you have the very thing that can save them. Don't be paralysed by fear. Don't pat yourself on the back saying, well, I'm okay. They can do it themselves. Be a Caleb. Trust in God. And everything is possible. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be complacent with sin in our life, but to drive it out. Free us from fear, the fear that so often paralyzes us from doing anything. Inspire us like Caleb to step out in bold faith, no matter how old we are. Father, tonight we all long to be front room warriors, not back room passengers. We know that starting well is good, but finishing well is even better. Equip us by your spirit to be bold warriors for Christ this week ahead. In Jesus' name.